Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's School of Culture, History and Language, and of Archaeology and Anthropology, and coming to you from the Australian Centre of Public Awareness of Science on a Saturday afternoon. I am your familiar stranger today, Julia Brown, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Jody Lee Tremble, Ian Pollock, Simon Theobald. He was a Russian bot, according to your voice right there. I was really tempted to say Kurbanguli Mohamedov. What does that mean? Kurbanguli uh, Berki Mohamedov is the, pre- is, the pre- is the current president of Turkmenistan. And also the <laughs> name you give yourself, right? That's what I want my, my future students to call me. Yeah. Because it's really long and difficult. Okay, let's start off with Jody. What have you been thinking about this week? I recently had a paper that I put into The Unfamiliar. Um, which is a postgrad journal based out of Edinburgh, which is an excellent journal, I have to say. What I found interesting was that one of the reviewers, when she was reading my paper, which is about university policies, university documents, which is a big part of my thesis, she said, I'm not sure that uh, you should be focusing so much on this idea of documents as practices, because you should be focusing on practices, practices which produce realities. I'm reading a quote now. Practices which produce realities and a document isn't a practice to my mind. And I really profoundly disagree with this idea because I think that a practice is something you do. And I think you do documents and I think you do various things with documents as well. So my question for you guys today is what is a policy? Is a policy an idea? Is it a document? Is it a set of practices? Is it um, something on a screen? Well, I would start by saying that it's a a formal document that should be enacted. Is it a policy before it's been enacted or is it only after it's been enacted? Well, I think a lot of work goes into making those policies. So is it a policy while it's still in that stage when everybody's talking about it, but it hasn't been written down formally? Is it a policy once it's been written down, but before it's been put into law um, officially by whatever minister or whatever official is making it, like signing off on it? Like at what point does it become a policy? Because I think that's important. At what point does it gain its power? And I would argue that it gains its power as an idea at the very beginning. And then the power changes. I think so. Well, this is actually really interesting to consider what's happened recently with the Royal Commission's inquiry into child abuse and the Catholic Church and how there has been a suggestion that celibacy, for instance, should be a voluntary part of becoming a priest, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw that news headline and thought that was something that was going to happen. And then I was talking to my partner about it and he's like, no, 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 people are just suggesting that and someone from the church has spoken out and said that this is a big contributor to the problem of pedophilia that needs to be addressed. But already it's it's a lively thing that yes, is giving Yes, a lively thing. To... What an excellent phrase, right? So one of my participants gave me this brilliant quote 
when he was talking about the policy documents at the university that I was studying, he was saying ideas just get up and grow legs and they run away with themselves and they have all these effects that the humans that came up with the ideas to start off with didn't intend. I mean, he was basically saying ideas have agency, right? These ideas become lively things. Much as I don't like the idea that things that are not people can have agency, can be making choices, I can sort of see how in a situation like this, even, you know, so talking about, for instance, you just brought up like celibacy in the church, that it becomes something that people talk about. And you could see how that would start to influence some people's behavior even before it became some sort of official enshrined and documented policy. However, I would still make the argument that it's not the policy, it's not the idea that has the agency, but the people who are spreading it around. But it's also how people are constituted through that policy making. And the final product is important. So how people are represented in that final document, like that has a huge impact. And is it not, you know, a paper document or a document on a computer? Is it not doing things? as well as the people that are doing things? Well, a document on a table is lying on a table, but it was put there by a person, and it was written by a person. Well, I mean, if, if the argument is that, like, if a person influences an action, that that's the only way that agency happens. Well, I mean, if I push you over and you're lying on the ground, then I've influenced that action. If I pick up a piece of paper and I put it on the table, well, I've influenced that action. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that the paper or you in those situations don't have agency. You can still get back up. The paper can still influence other Okay, we're talking about uh, papers and people writing them as very separate things. And I think it's really difficult to disentangle, especially when it comes to policy documents, because it's never one person that contributes to that policy in the first place. However, just keeping an eye on time, I'm going to move a lot. This is a really fruitful conversation to keep having. But, uh, Ian, tell us about what you've been thinking about recently. (laughs) Uh, I had the pleasant experience the other day of waking up for the first time in a month with an idea that I wanted to put into my thesis, which mostly I've just been waking up in the morning with the sound of a crying baby. So this was a real improvement. Uh, And just to think about what it means to live in an imaginary landscape. And what I mean by that is that my field site was in Indonesia, in Bajawa, which is a beautiful town up in the mountains where people live for the most part, in these sort of traditional houses. And the traditional houses that they build uh, have a lot of phases that they go through. So there's like a first phase that you build, which is the sort of cheapest and easiest one. It's out of bamboo. And then you graduate up. After a period of time, you save up resources. You get the wood. Finally, you build your traditional house out of wood. And then later, you save up resources again, and you do the wood carving. And so there's a series of kind of graduated levels of the house And you move up through them all the way up to the top. And there's a top one that you're supposed to get to. And the understanding is that no matter what level of the house you're already at, you're in the process of collecting materials to build the next one. So in a way, any house that you see is really just a symbol for the house that's going to be there someday. And you could look at entire villages and say that you shouldn't actually be looking at the houses that are there. The houses that are there are just stand-ins. They're just symbols for the houses that will one day be in their place. You could look at the entire landscape in that way. You know, all the the forest is space that's someday going to be farms and villages. The houses are the houses that will someday be there. The monuments and shrines, that they're stand-ins right now. But you have to imagine the way that it's going to be in the future. And so just starting to think about what it must be like to live in a landscape like that and how I could maybe turn it back on our own landscape as well. You'll need to further distinguish how you feel that 
this is different from any landscape because as far as I can, I mean, hypothetically, any future is possible, right? And you could say that looking at our own fair city of Canberra, if an asteroid fell on it, we could be looking at a future landscape where there was nothing there. Or there could be a future landscape where there are more buildings or there are a future landscape where there, where there are less buildings. But there's always some kind of process of ongoing future imagining about what will be there. So the difference, the difference as I see it is that in this case, we're looking at one very specific imaginary future. Right. It's not like you look at the Sydney Opera House and say, that's a stand in for the other better Sydney Opera House that we're all intending to build. That is how I feel about the Opera House, actually. Do you have a vision for some other Opera House that's supposed to be there? One that doesn't look like... Um, Pavlova. Well, no, <laughs> apparently I went to a talk and Slavo Zizek said that his son thought it looked like two tortoises mating. <gasps> so <laughs> <laughs> anything that doesn't look like that, to my mind, could be an improvement. <laughs> But imagine if every person in Sydney felt that way and they all had the same model of a new opera house that they'd all agreed on. And so when you look at the two tortoises mating, you don't actually see the two tortoises mating. You're like, yeah, it's two tortoises mating. But imagine, just look and see what's actually going to be there in the future. So like we could look at Canberra and say, yes, this could all be erased someday. But it's not because we have a unified vision of what's supposed to be here. I mean, that's interesting, though, I mean, because Canberra is actually a planned city and there are many cities which do, which many cities are planned, many urban spaces are planned, uh, and there is a kind of collective shared vision about what it, it ought to be like in the future. And yet it doesn't end up being that way. Uh, and, and arguably somewhere like Canberra, which had this very particular kind of trajectory, ended up being some kind of monstrous panel construction as it, as the as the original vision was changed and modified and so on. So again, I think you'll have to tell me more about why you th how you think this kind of specified future vision either can be realized or constitute something that's kind of substantially different from how anyone looks at, I don't know, the structure of reality around them. Listeners at home, if you have any particular readings you'd want to point me to on this topic, I hope you'll tweet them at us, like send us a, send us a citation or something at TFS Tweets. Can I just ask quickly whether you think that what you observed in your field site differed from what you think about now in your home environment and observing how people in like to bring it back to the Canberra question in visit like are people always building on what they have towards the future like no one's ever kind of set in their home are they and It's always temporary in a way I mean I grew up so I grew up in a big city where the buildings did not feel temporary to me. They felt like a landscape. That's how I thought of them in mm. New York where I grew up. It's like I lived on a canyon. Yeah. When I went to Zion National Park in Utah for the first time and you walk through the tiny canyons with the rivers in the bottom, it felt like New York City to me. Wow. So when 9-11 happened and suddenly some of those buildings were blown away, what it felt like to me in a visceral sense was that the mountains were gone. Something that shouldn't have been possible happened. So that is quite the opposite of the kind of imaginary landscape that I'm talking about, where the one that are, that's around you, that's physically substantiated, is the one that isn't real. It's a really good question to keep thinking on. I wish we had more time. Simon, to you, what have you been thinking about this week? I have been thinking about what I've been writing about, which, which is the paper I gave at the AAAS conference uh, in Adelaide. It was effectively about post-fact politics and the expectation of lies in political discourse in Western societies. But what I was arguing was that this kind of assumption that we have that there is a normative kind of base expectation, everyone lies, all politicians lie, etc., 
is not something that's shared everywhere and it might be particular to our own kind of Western liberal democracies. And that in particular is, is a kind of response to the kind of, you know, the last like 20, 10 years maybe of political intrigue. Uh, and I was drawing from my own fieldwork in Iran where I don't think people really iterated that same kind of, that same kind of um, sense of skepticism about their politicians. They actually had, I mean, they, I mean, it's true, they definitely didn't say everyone was honest, but they had a greater expectation that people should be telling the truth than we do. Uh, and I guess for me, that raises the question that in this kind of post, I was going to say post-Trump, but that's that's not what I, we, yeah, we all wish. That's some wishful yeah. thinking right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In this post-truth era that we live in, for me, one of the one of the real problem problems is why we why we do expect. I mean, it's kind of it's. I think it's corrosive for our kind of broader democracy. Is why we have this expectation that politicians lie. And I would like to believe that we could have if we had some greater kind of expectation of truthfulness, then that it might go some way to improving our own relationship with the democratic process. So, would you say that this is a words make worlds argument? Like, is this like? Discourses therefore make realities. This is, it is the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. In mm, what's that? The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that languages construct reality. So mm-hmm. your capacity to think is limited by the words that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it that? No, it's, I don't know what it is. It's it was just a nice little paper that I presented at a conference. Well, why are you still thinking about it then? Why am I still thinking about it? Yeah, what I, what I think I'm trying to get at is this: the fact that we that we will face. I mean, people like. You know what's happening in Russia, what's happening in many places. We we face this kind of long trajectory in which the kind of fundamentals of what we understood to be a shared notion of reality and a shared truth have been really eroded. And and now kind of anyone's truth is equally viable, right? Anyone says, and it's something that anthropology has historically kind of dealt with because we do often say, you know, the truths that our participants produce are their own realities, and yet we have this kind of broader shared notion that, well, that they're producing their own local realities, but it doesn't detract from our own larger, more truthful mm. reality. Um, and right. so I think they may think that the spirits are doing such and such, but we actually know that that it's science. imagination so or we, science we, or we have their truth that's like a little local truth and our own truth that it's a bigger global truth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think I think anthropologists have to kind of face this crisis when we have people like Trump who who apparently, according to the Washington Post live something like 5.5 times a day, and we say, I mean, do we say then that that is constitutive of its own reality, that Trump mm. lives in a reality that is his own legitimate truth? Or do we say, well, no, there is there is an absolute criterion of truthfulness. Uh, and that's something that we need to get back to. I, I would argue that in a shared social space, we do need to have some kind of fundamental basis for what we consider to be a truthful statement. And are those found in policy documents, Jody? <laughs> Well, they might be found there, whether anybody does anything with them. I think if you're looking at, I mean, talking of policy, looking at, for instance, in American politics, the new GOP tax plan that's coming out, it's based on a set of quote-unquote truths, ideas about how the economy works that have been completely debunked. And yet, they're still functioning to put together this policy as the justification for this policy. So I think we need to step back from an idea of what truth is for. Is it for creating a more equal and wonderful world? Or is it for reinforcing, enhancing the power of a small group that has the ability to declare what sets policy? What's, what are the truths that will be used to make policy decisions? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that that's what the Republican Party think they are doing. I mean, I feel like what I would ag- agree with is that most people think they are doing the right thing. 
I'm not saying we necessarily, I necessarily agree with the Republicans' model of how they think they're achieving this, this shared kind of better world that we're going to live in. I definitely don't. But I don't think it's like they wake up in the bed uh, every morning and say, you know, wow, I can't wait to do some evil today. Hmm. Um, that, I don't think that's how they're working. Okay, so as for the little nugget that I've been trying to think through the last week or so, it's the problem of emotion. And what I am thinking about now is how people productively connect or disconnect with their emotions and the tools that they use to do so. During the process of my fieldwork, which was based at two mental health clinics, and I was talking with patients and clinicians about their experiences of a treatment for schizophrenia, I often felt like that I was processing emotions that had in many ways been dead to a lot of my participants for a long time and they became very alive uh, in me and I'd, I often left the clinic and I'd find myself feeling very intensely attuned to everything around me and like my participants, I went um, between feeling quite numb as a result of trying to process so much and, as I said, feeling this intense meaning as well, uh, when I was engaged in certain things and they were often very embodied things. And one of those things was music. Basically, what I'm trying to say is as now I'm trying to communicate my participants' disconnections with their emotions, I'm finding that in order to do that and to be in my data again, I myself have to be in a certain emotional place and it has to be a very intense place where I can connect with the data and often that's evoked by music. And I guess I'm just wondering whether you guys ever go, like I know my fieldwork experiences were perhaps a little bit more intimate, shall we say, than, you know, in terms of the conversations I was having than what you guys had, although I think Jody might have had some pretty intense experiences as well. I just want to know how to better communicate how, you know, if it isn't something like music, a potentially dangerous health behaviour like smoking cigarettes, for example, which can also make people feel alive in a very similar way, how emotion is this missing link and how, like, what, what emotion has to do with it all and, yeah, maybe I should just narrow this down to how you guys process your data and where emotion fits in. What you're describing as sort of a method for yourself to access this information sounds dangerous to you personally. The kind of emotions that you're coming close to that schizophrenic patients, mentally ill patients undergo are dangerous to them. That's what brought them into that situation in the first place. And I just wonder if those kinds of personal risks are, those emotional risks are necessary for you to take in order to write about it or if you're taking some kind of precaution to be careful with yourself? Well, I don't think I would be able to access my participants' experiences the way I have without putting myself at some kind of emotional risk. And I now have taken measures to look after myself better. But, I mean, this is the problem for anthropologists without any clinical training working in mental health. It is tough, um, but it's also helped me sympathize a lot more with my clinical staff participants and how they detach and 
it led to a lot of really productive conversations with them about compartmentalization and so forth. I mean, it's interesting because artists, for instance, say they need to suffer for their art, whereas analysts would say you need to detach. Okay. And here it sounds like you're using your emotion in order to analyze. Well, I think I am. Yeah, but are, are you guys? Or no. is it just me? <laughs> no. Not really. Maybe it's the topic. Like, I, I feel like what I'm looking at is really at the core of the human condition. And I know we probably all feel like that about our own work, but I, I don't think I could afford to not personalize it and try and immerse myself in it in some way. And this whole reflexivity thing in anthropology where we have to be introspective has been an incredibly useful tool for me. Yeah, it is definitely like I, I made a lot of notes in the field on how I was feeling while I was taking notes about certain things so that I could look back later and go, okay, so if I was in a bad mood while I was watching that, then it's possible that the notes that I've taken are influenced by the mood I was in or by something awful that I saw. So I, I've made really careful notes so that, so that I can be critical of my own note-taking and analysis. And then I find it also quite useful to remember how it felt to be in that moment um, while I'm doing my analysis so that so I guess I'm, I'm kind of embodying my notes in mm. that sense is, is that sort of what yeah you yeah like do you feel like in order to sit down and write you have to be completely connected with your data again I, I would say I use heuristics to sort of get me into a writing mode that connects me to the appropriate emotions to help me to write so for example uh, I put on the sound of rain because mm, the ambient sound. Stuff. Yeah, the ambient yeah. sound because otherwise I have ringing in my ears and I find that really frustrating. Mm. So the raining sound really helps. I quite often put on essential oils depending on what kind of mood I need to evoke, and I find those things really kind of give me a shortcut into the kind of writing I need to do. Ian and Simon, can you relate Nada? at all to this, or do you find that you could just go really? into the office if you had Simon's something to do? Head. You just do it. Like there's no kind of prep in a way. There's no emotional prep work that goes into getting yourself in that zone where you're in your thesis. If I'm thinking good, I'll write. If I'm stupid that morning, <laughs> I'll probably take a bit longer. Is there something that helps you think good? And what does that feel like? I mean, I can be in a shitty mood, but I don't think it necessarily like impacts on my, my writing. I, I, I find this, this experience... <laughs> experience um, both intellectually difficult and quite unrelatable because for me I, I've long found it hard to believe necessarily that I mean I just look at the world and I think you know gee someone's doing something completely differently from how I would do it and I assume that's a radical point of differentiation as opposed to necessarily that we share some kind of combined fundamental sense of humanity right and then secondly, I just I I just write. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't really feel the need to to get into like a particular I mean sometimes when I'm bored, I'll definitely go and like be like, yo, Ian, what you doing? Let's have a let's have a joke. I can concur. He does do this. But when you were doing your field work, did you feel emotionally stirred in some way? Or weird? Weird? I'm, well, just like estranged. Absolutely. There were moments of estrangement. Uh, I noticed the most at like really powerful emotional moments that really brought it into focus. So for instance, a funeral. 
or a mass slaughter of pigs, 20, 30 pigs being killed at the same time. My emotional responses to these things were really different from the people around me. Mm. And those differences became really visible in those moments. At other times, I didn't spend as much time writing about emotion as maybe I should have. Because now as I look back on my field notes, I do wish I had more of that texture. Well, see, the thing is, I'm not even writing about it per se. I'm just experiencing it. Also, your your blog post about um, the Pulse nightclub uh, massacre. Nightclub massacre. Yeah. Like your emotions in that, when you're talking about that in the blog post, are so strong and so completely different to what your participants were experiencing at that point. And you did have to step away from doing fieldwork at that time because you were aware that you couldn't not let that influence you, right? Right, that's true. And writing that post was an emotional experience as well and not one that I would, uh, I would put myself in that position again lightly. So I just want to make sure that as you undertake writing a thesis, which is a hell of a lot longer than a blog post, that you gird yourself emotionally for that task if, it's going to, if that's the route that you're going to take. You but take it's on... it with full support. Thank you. And I, I am, but I feel like it's an integral part of the process. And if oh, I'm... Hey. If I'm going to do this, I have to... Do it. Make it sing. Make us feel yeah, it. Yeah, but it's also why I have to get it done quickly, draw boundaries around it, and it's why I'm in more of a hurry than you guys to finish it. Anyway, um, we're really going to have to wrap it up there, so I want to thank Jody Lee Trembath. Thanks, Julia. Ian Pollock. Thank you. And Simon Theobald. Thank you. And I'm Julia Brown. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, and our executive producer is Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world today at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabrow. Find a link to his EP on the show notes. And special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Do we normally do that? <laughs> <laughs>